The Macintosh is one of the most important personal computers of all time, and it's still with us today. Almost 40 years since its original debut, we still use Macs, but where did they all get started? Welcome to Copec Explain Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. All right, Dave, this week, let's talk about the original Macintosh and what made it so special. Well, the original Macintosh came out in 1984, and it was a real milestone in the computer industry. It was the first personal computer that was affordable and had a graphical user interface. Now, note that I said affordable because there were two machines before it that had graphical user interfaces, the Xerox Alto and the Apple Lisa, another machine from Apple but they cost so much money that regular people couldn't afford them and even a lot of small business users couldn't afford them. And so Apple didn't come out with this machine out of nowhere. They weren't the first with a graphic user interface, they were not the first with a mouse, but they were the first to make that interface and that peripheral affordable for regular people. And so they called it sometimes the computer for the rest of us because of course a graphic user interface was a lot easier to use than the command line interfaces that came before it. And we already covered this in a previous episode about the evolution of user interfaces. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes if people wanna know more about the differences between the graphic user interface and the command line interface that came before it on machines like the IBM PC and the Apple II. But what I'll just say for now is that the graphic user interface was a revelation for people who hadn't seen it before. It was much easier to use, it was much more intuitive. It still had a little bit of a learning curve, but we're still with it really to this day. We still use, when we use Microsoft Windows or we use a modern Mac, we're, we're still using the same sort of graphical user interface that the Macintosh in 1984 first made accessible to the masses. So while we might not love it, as modern computer users, we would find the original Macintosh user interface really recognizable. Really recognizable, and I think any modern computer user would be able to go to the Apple Macintosh, sit down, and use it, which would not necessarily be true about the original IBM PC running DOS or the Apple II. They would actually have to go find out some commands, look it up. It wouldn't be as intuitive. So in many ways, the original Apple Macintosh is still with us in a way that the Apple II and the original IBM PC are not. One of the things that is really special about the original Macintosh was the team behind it. Can you talk a little bit about who those folks were and what impact they had? Both the hardware team and the software team were really a team of artists, and they saw themselves that way. Steve Jobs encouraged them to think about themselves that way. He was the manager of the team, and they actually put their signatures on the inside case in the molded plastic of the original Macintosh. So we had great people working on software like Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld to this day are considered some of the greatest software engineers that Apple ever had. Great hardware people like Burl Smith and Bud Tribble. But an interesting thing is that there were also great artists in the literal sense of artists. For example, Susan Kerr designed a lot of the icons on the original Macintosh. And she also would go on to design a lot of the icons on some early versions of Microsoft Windows. So in many ways, she defined the iconography of the entire desktop PC market for a couple of decades. And those analogies and paradigms that she laid out were still actually living with. So there were so many superstars on this team, not to mention that it was being led by Steve Jobs, who 
to this day, of course, is considered one of the greatest businessmen of all time. Back in 1984, he might not have been quite the businessman he was when he died in 2011. There were some real issues with the business model of the original Macintosh. That said, he was an inspiring leader who made the team see themselves as on a mission, on a mission that was almost like prophesize that they were gonna go and lead the masses to a better computing future. He called the Macintosh a bicycle for the mind, an enabler of human beings with technology to use technology as tools to enhance their capabilities. And he saw that as something that wasn't just there for business users, wasn't just there for big corporations, but was there for everyday people. And that was why he was trying to turn the Macintosh into a uh, almost like a home appliance that anyone could use, whether they were 60 or six, they could sit down with the mouse and the graphical user interface and become comfortable with this friendly machine. Well, who wouldn't be motivated by that? I mean, that's a pretty uh, exciting vision. It is. And we talked more about how revolutionary the personal computer was in our earlier episode, The Personal Computer Revolution. And this is kind of an extension of that. So I'll put a link to that in our show notes, our earlier episode on The Personal Computer Revolution. One of the myths, I think, around this computer is that Apple stole some ideas from Xerox. But can you debunk that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point, Rebecca. You know, when the original Xerox Alto came out, it was even in some ways you can think about it as more revolutionary than the Macintosh because it was the first to have a graphical user interface. But Xerox was unable to really commercialize it. It was too expensive and they didn't really have the vision that this could be something that everyday people could use. And the technology behind it was very customized, whereas the Macintosh used an off-the-shelf microprocessor, the Motorola 68000. Now, Xerox was not able to commercialize it successfully, but they were actually kind of, you could almost think about them as corporate friends with Apple. And in 1979, they invited Apple to come see the technology that they were working on and get a demonstration from the engineers of how it worked in exchange for being able to invest in Apple. And Apple was gonna IPO just a, just a year or two later. So they were getting this investment opportunity in exchange for kind of this technology transfer. And so there was, this was actually an agreement between the two companies. It's a myth that Apple went and stole the GUI technology from Xerox. They were invited in. It was an agreement. And, you know, they actually had some even other really incredible advanced technology at Xerox. They also had some of the first Ethernet networking, and which, you know, was a predecessor to the networking that we still use on our computers today. And they also had one of the first object-oriented systems in Smalltalk at the time. And so the, all of this was going on and, and Steve Jobs and the team were aware of all of it and they really only took one of the three, right? Later on, Apple and Microsoft would develop their networking capabilities and develop object-oriented frameworks. But at the time, the, the first thing that they took was the GUI, but maybe the, the other golden nuggets would have to wait. So Xerox didn't successfully commercialize it. Apple did with the Apple Lisa, which comes out in 1982, but the Apple Lisa had two problems. One, it was too expensive. It cost like $10,000 per machine on average, and that was in 1982 dollars. That's a lot more money today. And it also was a machine that had not very good disk drives. And so they were called Twiggy disk drives, and they were not reliable. And so for those two reasons, even though the Apple Lisa, in some ways, it had a lot more RAM and it actually had disk drives, was more powerful than the first Macintosh, which only had 128 kilobytes of RAM and didn't have a hard disk drive. It only had a floppy disk drive. Even though in many ways it was a more powerful machine, it was so expensive and it had these disk problems, uh, so it really didn't end up taking off almost at all even though it was revolutionary in that it was a lot cheaper than the Alto, had a graphical user interface, had a mouse, 
it was still priced out of the market. When you say GUI, what you mean is graphical user interface. Right. Sorry for using that abbreviation. But yeah, in the industry, people often just say GUI when they mean GUI. And again, we covered that in the earlier episode. Uh, what was the evolution of UIs that I'll link to? So the original Mac really capitalizes on some timing it's an, and a vision that Steve Jobs has, as well as some pretty powerful and new technology that everyday folks hadn't had access to in the past. Right, that's right. So it was a technological milestone. It was making this interface, the graphical user interface, affordable to everybody. And at the same time, it was packaging it in such a way, in a friendly way, in a way that had actually some software partners there at launch. One of the big software partners when the Macintosh came out was Microsoft. In fact, we talked about this in our spreadsheets episode, but Microsoft Excel originally came out on the Mac. Microsoft PowerPoint originally came out on the Mac and Microsoft Word first sold a lot of copies on the Mac. Mm -hmm. And so actually a lot of Microsoft's famous apps first came out on the early Macintosh and then later were ported to Windows. So, um, and PowerPoint actually first came out from a independent startup company that then got bought by Microsoft later on. But anyway, the point being, there was some really innovative software that came out on the original Macintosh within the first couple of years of its release, including the first desktop publishing software. That was another way that the Macintosh was revolutionary, was that there used to be really expensive, really sophisticated typesetting software for doing any kind of printed documents, whether we're talking about even things as simple as flyers or posters, but also things as sophisticated as books. And the publishing industry very quickly moved to the Macintosh. It was the combination of the graphical user interface, which meant you could have a WYSIWYG interface, W-Y-S-I-W-I-G, what you see is what you get. And what that means is what you're seeing on the screen is exactly what the document's gonna look like when it gets printed. And the Macintosh really popularized that because it had the capability with its bitmap display with a graphical user interface to really make that possible. But then the other big thing was Apple shipped the laser writer within a year of the Macintosh. And this was another big thing that Steve Jobs was really pushing for, and he was right about it, is that having the combination of the WYSIWYG software with the laser writer allowed people to quickly output business quality documents without having to use these really sophisticated typesetting systems and even do it in a better, more intuitive way, produce these documents. And so the Mac made a big impact on the publishing industry within a couple years of its release. In fact, the LaserWriter printer, which they developed in combination with Canon, was so sophisticated, it actually had a microprocessor as powerful as the Macintosh itself. And it actually cost more than the Macintosh itself. It's hard to think about today that, that a small laser printer would cost as much as, as um, a relatively expensive computer, but actually cost even more back then. That's how advanced laser writer technology was at the time, or laser printer technology was at the time. Something else that was special or unique about the Macintosh was also just the, the marketing campaign. Um, it really took hold in a pop culture kind of way. There's this really famous commercial, and it's won many awards being the most famous commercial of all time from both the public and also from industry bigwigs who voted on it. But in the advertising industry, Apple's 1984 commercial, which announced the debut of the Macintosh and aired only once at the Super Bowl, is considered one of the greatest commercials of all time. And basically what it does is it poses 
IBM, which was the big computing behemoth in the 1980s. And we, of course, talked about IBM in our previous episode about why the IBM PC was so important. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But IBM was the dominant computing company. And they were seen kind of as the bad guy, of course, by Apple. Apple was like the upstart kind of revolutionary. And IBM was this big monolith uh, with everyone doing the same thing, everyone using these boring machines. And that's how they posed them in, in 1984. It was a play on the book 1984 by George Orwell. And they were saying, well, you know, if you want to be like a clone of everyone else and use a PC, then you're like kind of the the um, mindless drones in the book 1984 who follow the great leader. And then in the in the commercial, you, and we actually have a poster of it here in the room that we're yeah. talking about. It's a really cool poster. But you have this this young woman who is running with all these guards from, you know, the, the big state, in this case IBM, going after her. And she's holding a sledgehammer and wielding it and... Um, throwing it around and around her, her body and then releases it into the screen that all the drones are watching and it explodes. Anyway, I'll put a link to a YouTube video of it in the show notes so people can check it out. But that commercial was revolutionary and it really spoke to this whole ethos of the Macintosh being for, for creative thinkers, for regular people and not for just business drones and technical people. Mm-hmm. You know, that commercial really brought what the culture of Apple is to the general public, which then became a trend. And they've had a lot of really interesting, fun, cool commercials since then that really speak to what is the uh, characteristic of an Apple user. Yeah, it was really a landmark commercial, just not only for Apple, but also for the entire advertising industry. But, you know, you'd think, okay, they have this great commercial and they have this exciting machine that it would really do great when it came out. But the truth is, for the first year that the Macintosh came out, it didn't do so great. And they had a real problem at Apple because they put a lot of money and engineering resources into developing this machine, and it was not really doing as well as the Apple II that it was supposed to replace. The Apple II, for years after the debut of the Macintosh, was really what kept Apple going. And they had already had two failed machines. They had the Apple III, which failed, and they'd had the Apple Lisa, which failed. And so they really needed the Macintosh to be successful. But during the first year, for a couple of reasons, it really wasn't. What are some of those reasons? So the two things that were really problematic with that first 1984 Macintosh, sometimes called the Mac 128K, is that it only had 128K of RAM. Now, that was actually a lot for a personal computer in 1984, but the issue was that with a new graphical user interface operating system, 128K was really not enough to do uh, any kind of sophisticated software on top of already having to run the graphical user interface operating system. And so today, of course, we think 128K, that's laughable. It was a significant amount of RAM at the time, but it was not enough for what the machine was trying to do. So quickly, about a year later, they came out with a, the, what sometimes was called the Fat Mac, which was the Mac 512K. It had four times as much RAM. And it was actually uh, when the Mac started to be able to run some more sophisticated software. And then a year after that, the Mac Plus came out that had a megabyte of RAM and things started to really be more comfortable. But the other thing about the Macintosh is in the public, even though some people were excited about it, there was a lot of people, including these kind of business users and people who were loyal to IBM, who saw it as kind of a toy. Didn't have enough RAM to really do the interesting software. It had this mouse, which to us today looks familiar, but to people back then also looked kind of like a toy. And it didn't run any of that DOS software that had become so dominant in the PC industry. So it wasn't compatible with a lot of people's software. 
It didn't have enough RAM. And, you know, it didn't even have a hard drive, actually, the original Mac, which was pretty normal for personal computers at the time, but for a machine that expensive, it would have been nice if it had a hard drive. And it took years, actually, till Macs got hard drives. And there's one more thing. Steve Jobs had such a vision of it being this appliance-like device that anyone could use that he didn't want to make its internals kind of open to the user. And so it actually was basically non-upgradable. It was very hard to upgrade. There were almost no upgrades for the original Macintosh. It didn't have an upgrade slot. And there were a lot of users who were users of Apple IIs who loved how the Apple II, I think, had seven expansion slots. And they could put all kinds of cards. And so if you were a scientist, you could add um, some kind of meter card into it. And if you were a business user, you could add a card for a modem. And you could do all this expansion to the, uh, the Apple II and also to the IBM PC. But the Mac was this closed system. So it was a closed system that didn't have enough RAM and didn't have the type of software that people were using in businesses. So its first year, it didn't really sell very well. And there wasn't like this killer use case. It took a year or two for that desktop publishing market that we talked about earlier to take off and for these Macs with more RAM and more expansion capabilities to come out. And Steve Jobs would actually leave the company in 1985. He was basically forced out because he had bet everything on the Mac and the Mac hadn't done so well. So he got into a boardroom battle with the CEO that he had brought in, John Scully. And there's a great story behind that that maybe we'll talk about on another episode. But um, he, he basically got forced out of the company. And then he would go on to start Next, which eventually got bought by Apple in 97. And that would bring him back. But he was gone from the company he founded for uh, almost 12 years. The original Mac has quite a legacy. Is there anything else that would be important for our listeners to know about? Well, of course, the Mac didn't win the desktop wars. And we, again, this is something we'll probably get more into in an episode about this, but Microsoft Windows did. And we talked about in our IBM PC episode how DOS became the dominant operating system of the 1980s. And DOS, of course, got replaced by Microsoft with Windows. And the first version of Windows doesn't actually come out that long after the Macintosh. The Macintosh comes out in 1984 and then Windows comes out in 1985, Windows 1.0. And Windows 1.0 was even less of a success than the Macintosh. Nobody bought Windows 1.0, but Microsoft would keep iterating. There was Windows 2.0, which also wasn't a huge success, but then it really started to hit its stride with Windows 3.0. And so it would take years, but eventually Microsoft would be able to duplicate a lot of what went into the Mac, a lot of that artistry, a lot of that intuitiveness about the Mac's user interface, would get duplicated in Windows over time, ultimately culminating in what at the time some people considered a better version, Windows 95 versus the Macs at the time in the mid 90s. So Microsoft would play the long game in the graphical user interface space. They would keep iterating and they would eventually start to beat Apple at their own game. Of course, from the late 90s through to today, Microsoft Windows has been the dominant operating system, actually going back to the early 90s. And it has something like 90% market share even to this day amongst desktop PCs and the Mac, although it's grown the last few years, is still around 10% of the market. Mm -hmm. So the long game, Apple would not really win, but the Mac is one of only two computing platforms that still is really with us from the original early 80s kind of um, PC revolutions uh, height. And that is the IBM PC and its clones, which eventually led to you know, what's called Wintel, Windows running on Intel compatible microprocessors, and the Macintosh. They're the only two computers that really survive to this day from that original era. There were a lot of other graphical user interface computers that actually came out. There were things like the Amiga in the mid-1980s. There were uh, actually devices from 
Atari that had graphical user interfaces. There was BOS in the 1990s, which is an alternative operating system. There was OS2 from Microsoft and IBM, but only the Mac and Windows are still with us. And so there was actually a lawsuit a little bit later on where uh, Apple sued Microsoft for copying the Mac and Windows, but they had actually signed a licensing agreement with Microsoft that Microsoft ended up getting to use in that lawsuit against them. And they had licensed some of the graphic user interface innovations. And there's this famous line where Bill Gates says, you know, it's like Xerox was this, um, this house that both Microsoft and Apple stole from. And Apple's just upset that Microsoft got out with the TV where Apple only got the stereo. Um, but that's not, as we talked about today, that's not really how it went down. There was actually an agreement, as we discussed, between um, between all these companies, really, because there was an agreement between Xerox and Apple, and there was actually an agreement between Apple and Microsoft as well. And Microsoft kind of cut its teeth making some of its first GUI software for the Macintosh, and they were a pivotal part of that. And to this day, Microsoft makes software for the Macintosh. They've never stopped. Microsoft is one of the largest vendors of software for the Macintosh. Almost everyone who uses a Mac uses Microsoft Office for Mac. Well, Rebecca, we'll talk more about the evolution of the Macintosh in a future episode, but it was great having everyone this week. I want to remind everybody to leave us a review on your podcast player of choice. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? We're at Copec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>